Before we get started this morning, I want to give everybody an update. We packed off a group of four to head to Kiev on Thursday afternoon. We were a little late getting away from the airport. For some reason, the plane was delayed, but they got there safe and sound about 7.30 at night on uh, Friday night, Kiev time, a little bit exhausted, and then uh, they got squared away where they were staying, and then yesterday morning they got up, got a chance to uh, meet with some of the uh, older teens and, and uh, young adults that are helping run the activity part of the camp that they're starting probably about now, and they are... They got to do that. They got to take the uh, subway over into the main part of town a couple of times into the center of Kiev, and then they uh, got to go to the market and the grocery store, various things like that, which was a new experience. But then in the afternoon, they went to the cancer hospital, to the children's cancer hospital in Kiev, and Jim Dumas, who works with Jim Myers, was just using that as an opportunity to t- give them uh, a chance to break into what they were going to have to be doing this week, give them a chance to work with an interpreter a little bit, and to give them an opportunity to to work with the kids and see what they could do. So they had a had a good time there. I t- talked with Dan briefly last night and got a, then got an email from him. So they're they're doing well. They were going to go to church this morning at, at uh, uh, Jim Myers Church, the Word of Life Church, and then after that they were to head off to camp, which was about an hour out of town. So they they are probably. Uh, getting started, there are 50 kids, and the uh, uh, finances that we sent over there with Dan uh, were not only enabled the operation of much of the camp, but also made it possible for five of those kids from the cancer hospital to go to camp for the week. So uh, we'll get a report next week. They get the camp lasts from now until next Saturday morning, and Dan will email me a report next Saturday. And then the next week they get back late on a Saturday night, but not too late. And so on that Sunday morning, I think I'm going to give the first hour to them to give a report. Dan has had two missions trips this summer, one to Brazil, uh, and Argent- not Brazil, but to uh, Argentina and Chile, and then this one to Kiev. So he's going to take the m- main part of that service to not only report on this trip, but also on what's going on down in Brazil I mean, excuse me, South America, Argentina, and Chile. So that's uh, just a little update. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin this morning, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give us the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will begin. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we have the privilege and the freedom to gather together as a body of believers in this country to worship you. We thank you for the foresight, for the intelligence, for the wisdom of our founding fathers that they constructed such a unique form of government, unique in all of human history, one that was founded upon the principles of Scripture, a government that allowed for true, genuine freedom that is always being threatened and must always be fought for, must always be preserved. Father, we continue to pray your protection upon this country, upon our president, 
They pray that you would give them wisdom, that his advisors would give them him solid and correct information, and that you would continue to guide and direct him. We pray for those in this congregation who are overseas. We pray that you would continue to watch over them and protect them and bring them home safely. Father, we thank you that we have your word that instructs us and guides us, that it is your word that gives us an understanding of the events in human history, their significance and what you are doing in human history, that these are not just random events that just happen by chance, but that you have a plan and a purpose, and indeed you control history. Now, Father, as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians today, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we're studying, to gain a greater appreciation for what you are doing in this church age and what you are doing in our lives as church age believers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our study in 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 12, but don't turn there because we won't spend any time in 1 Corinthians 12 for probably five or six weeks. The subject as we get into 1 Corinthians 12 is on spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, through chapter 14 describe for us the basic principles governing the use of spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 focuses on the importance of spiritual gifts, the source of spiritual gifts in God the Holy Spirit, that spiritual gifts are given to every believer at the instant of salvation, and their purpose is to minister to other members of the body of Christ. The context is corporate worship, public assembly of believers. It's not talking about the use of spiritual gifts necessarily outside the church, although in terms of some of those gifts, they function outside the body, of, outside the public meeting of the body of Christ. For example, mercy and some other uh, of the gifts, evangelism, would function outside of the context of the local church. But seen through the grid of the revelation of God in 1 Corinthians 12, the primary purpose of, first, uh, of spiritual gifts is to minister to members of the body of Christ, as it's stated again and again, for we are members of one another. So one of the important factors in looking at the whole image of the body of Christ is that we are one body that emphasizes unity, that we are members of one another. And then on the other hand, but there are differences in gifts. So that indicates and emphasizes individuality. And as we get into a study of spiritual gifts, we're going to see why there has to be a, a, a balance there. We always have to struggle and fight against human viewpoint emphasis on whatever it is that we're teaching. And in spiritual gifts, one of the human viewpoint factors that that, inf- that influences American Christianity is the idea of rugged individualism that comes out of our frontier past and comes out of the colonization process. And this idea of rugged individualism so emphasizes the individual and the importance of the individual that when it comes over to Christianity and we start emphasizing spiritual gifts, people always worry, what's my spiritual gift? How do I use my spiritual gift? And some people push it to the extreme, and they don't even get involved in a local church very much, which in some areas I recognize is very difficult today. In fact, I had an email from uh, one uh, taper the other day who lives somewhere up in Vermont or New Hampshire, I believe, and he was asking a question about whether or not he should be, uh, what he should do. He realized the importance of being involved in a local church. And you need to be involved in a local church to utilize your spiritual gift. It's part of your priesthood. That really isn't optional. You also need to be involved in a local church to partake of the Lord's table. And you have to be involved in a local church in order to be involved with other members of the body of Christ and the mutuality of all the one another passages, and I've gone over that a lot. And sometimes it's very difficult today. Sometimes you have to understand what you can tolerate. And he asked me, he had a child, and that child was going to a local church, denominational church for Sunday school, and he was going, but he recognized he wasn't learning anything. But the only other options were also bad. And I said, well, you have to realize that regionally in this country, some places have better options than others. I, mean, you, I think it's still generally true 
that in many areas in the south and in the west, you can find a couple of denominations that still at least have pastors to teach the word, although that, I understand, is becoming less and less significant because, or less and less true because of the influence of the church growth movement and the whole influence of rock and roll music on Sunday morning in terms of praise and worship and all of the other dog and pony shows that go on. I realize that it's very hard to find something that is tolerable. However, when I use that word tolerable, something you can tolerate, I'm, I'm really hitting a certain segment of people out there who listen to tapes who are five miles from a guy who's teaching the truth. I've heard tapers say, well, you know, he disagrees. He, he doesn't agree on this point or that point, so I won't go there. Well, I'm sorry, but you're out of line. If you go to a local church and the guy's pretty straight, he may be off on a point here or there. You may not agree with that pastor on a point here or there, but I'm not, you have a right and you have a purpose to be involved in that local church if you can. I'm talking about people who live in some place like the Northwest, which is just about as pagan and anti-Christian as the Northeast, where you're in some town of maybe 100,000, and there hasn't been anybody who even had a clue what the gospel was for 50 years or more, uh, where there really isn't anything that is tolerable that you can put up with. I'm not talking about going someplace where the guy is, teaches faith alone and Christ alone. is basically a traditional dispensationalist, but he may not be very deep. He may not be very profound, but he's not teaching uh, error. He believes in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. He believes in the authority of God. He believes in, in uh, a, a framework that is basically true and biblical. Uh, even though he may differ on a point here or a point there, you have to discern what's worth fighting for, what's worth fighting and dying for, and what's not. And see, there are some people who think that you have to fight and die for every piece of of minutia in the Scriptures. And so they just want to go take their tape recorder and run off into the woods somewhere and live by themselves in some kind of individualistic, isolationist uh, view of the Christian life. And so we're going to have to spend a lot of time talking about the counter to that in the Scripture, which is that we are members of one another. There is a body of Christ. And to this body of Christ are given spiritual gifts. Every believer has a spiritual gift. You may not know what your spiritual gift is. You may never know what your spiritual gift is. But if you are a growing and advancing believer, those spiritual abilities will manifest themselves in your life, and you you don't have to know what it is. The, the uh, spiritual gifts themselves are rather broad categories that may be applied in many different ways, by many different people, depending on their personalities, depending on their natural gifts and talents, and depending on the opportunities that they have. But So chapter 12 focuses on the variety of the spiritual gifts, emphasizing the fact that we are one body and members of one another, yet we each have a distinct and important role. No one is any more or less important to the overall health of the body of Christ than anyone else. Now chapter 13 focuses on a better way. Chapter 13 recognizes the fact that the uh, Corinthians, much like many modern uh, people, many modern Christians, think that spiritual gifts are something that should be uh, sought after, something that should be emphasized, that some gifts are better than others. For example, the charismatic gifts or tongues or healing or something like that. And that was the exact problem the Corinthians had. So Paul says what's more important than spiritual gifts are the virtues, especially faith, hope, and love, and the one that is the greatest is love. And in chapter 13, we have an emphasis on the virtues of love, the characteristics of love, and the temporary nature of the revelatory or sign gifts, such as prophecy, knowledge, tongues, healing, words of wisdom, and words of knowledge. So we will get into those details in chapter 13. Chapter 14 deals with the regulations for the practice of gifts in the public assembly, how they are to be utilized in the public assembly, and understanding the purposes uh, for the purpose for these gifts. So we will get into chapter 14. I envision that this will probably take us through Thanksgiving.
at the very least. So the question we need to ask before we get into the whole subject of spiritual gifts is why are there spiritual gifts? And what is the significance of the distribution of spiritual gifts in the church age? Remember, spiritual gifts did not exist prior to the day of Pentecost. Spiritual gifts did not exist prior to the day of Pentecost. You did not have spiritual gifts in the Old Testament. Now, you had certain enhanced capacities in the Old Testament that were certainly a product of the work of the Holy Spirit, but remember, he neither indwelt nor filled believers in the Old Testament. They were not baptized by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and there were, they weren't sealed by the Holy Spirit. None of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit functioned in the Old Testament. You had abilities such as uh, prophecy, the gift of prophecy, but it wasn't a spiritual gift. Sometimes we use that phrase, the gift of prophecy, but as a gift, that concept of gift is never utilized. That terminology is never utilized in the Old Testament. There were prophets through whom God revealed his word, but it wasn't a spiritual gift. Furthermore, there was healing. For example, Elijah healed the widow's sons. There were some miracles that were performed at times by Moses, by Elijah, by Elisha, and by a couple of other prophets. But these were not spiritual gifts. Remember, by definition, a spiritual gift is an ability provided at salvation for every believer at salvation by the Holy Spirit, actually all three members of the Trinity are involved in the distribution of spiritual gifts, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we will study those details uh, eventually. So a spiritual gift is given as an ability, especially enhanced ability, not a natural talent, playing the piano, leading music. Uh, none of these things are spiritual gifts. I've heard people say that, which just shows they don't spend any time thinking about these things. Spiritual gift is an ability provided at salvation by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of benefiting the body of Christ in terms of spiritual growth and encouragement. Remember that before Pentecost, there was no body of Christ. The body of Christ does not begin until the day of Pentecost in about 33 A.D., after the rapture occurs, at the end of the church age, when all believers living and dead are taken immediately to be with the Lord in the air, there is and will be no body of Christ. After the rapture, there will be no body of Christ. So therefore, spiritual gifts as such are limited to operation in the church age. They are unique to church, the church age and church age believers. Now, why is that? That's a question we need to answer. Why is it that in this age, in this time period in which we live between Pentecost and the rapture, why is it that God is giving individual believers these special abilities? Well, to answer that, I think we get a hint over in Ephesians chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Uh, you can turn there and look in your Bible. We won't spend a lot of time there this morning. This is an introductory message to an introductory subject. So we're going to paint with a broad brush stroke this morning because we have to get into, before we get into the doctrine of spiritual gifts, we have to answer the question of why spiritual gifts. And Ephesians 4, 7 to 11 gives us an indication that the giving of spiritual gifts is directly related to the ascension and session, present session, that means uh, the session of Christ means his being seated now at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. So the giving of spiritual gifts is directly related to the fact that Christ had to ascend before he could send the Holy Spirit. So we have to address the whole subject of the ascension and session of Christ and its relationship to the church age before we can ever get to answer that key question, why spiritual gifts? So let's look briefly at Ephesians 4, 7 to 12. We will spend some time in the next two or three weeks on this particular passage. So let's just get it in our fixed in our minds that this is a framework that gives us the, the subject we're addressing. In verse 7, but to each one of us, Paul says, to each one of us as believers, grace 
was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this introduces us to the idea that grace, charis, and literally it's uh, that grace here is given according to the measure. So it's going to differ. It's going to be proportional. Not everybody is going to have the same measure of a spiritual gift. Then Paul says in verse 8, Therefore it says, and this is a standard way of quoting the Old Testament. So he makes a point in verse 7, To each of us grace, and here he's referring to spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts were given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, now he's going to go back and pull from the Old Testament a quote out of Psalm 68 that's going to provide a rationale and a background for understanding spiritual gifts. Principle. You can't understand the Old, I mean the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. Paul makes it clear, and what we will see as we go through this study is the whole doctrine of the ascension of Christ is embedded in a number of Old Testament passages. It may not be precisely clear how they relate in the Old Testament to the original hearers, but the New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are going back and pulling from these psalms and other events, and they're tying these things together for us to provide us with the insight necessary to understand the purpose for spiritual gifts. So there's a quote from Psalm 68:17 in verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now what we will see in, when we get there probably next week, that this verse is slightly different from Psalm 68:17. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul changes it because he's going to take the principle, the idea there, and he's going to tweak it and apply it in a different way. This isn't giving us an interpretation of Psalm 68:17. He is a, applying, he's going to quote from the psalm, to apply a principle. And the basic principle is the giving of gifts. Now that's the key, key idea here at the end of verse 8. He gave gifts to men, whereas the difference is in Psalm 68:17, it's talking about it, he received gifts from men. So there's a lot to cover there when we finally get to this passage. And then from quoting that passage, all Paul is doing is focusing on that one phrase, he ascended. And he's going to comment on that and derive a principle from it. This gives us an idea of how Paul exegeted and taught the scriptures. It's verse by verse. It's line upon line and precept upon precept. He said, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lowest or lower parts of the earth? See, he looks at the verb in verse 8, when he ascended, and he stops and he says, okay, when he ascended, what does that mean? Well, ascend means to go up. Well, before something goes, we always say anything goes up must come down. But in the case of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's not bound by gravity, uh, when he comes down, when he goes up, he had to first come down. And that is the point that Paul is making in verse 9. If he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? And we'll have to come back and look at what that means. But I don't want to be distracted by some of these details just yet. I want to give us a global understanding of what's going on here. Verse 10, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all, th- all the heavens that he might fill all things. There's the doctrine of the ascension of Christ. So he ascended so that he could give gifts to men. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets to temporary gifts no longer in effect today, and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So in Ephesians 4, 7 through 12, the main point I want to make, and we'll have to develop it more fully in the coming weeks, is that the ascension was necessary in order for before Jesus could send the Holy Spirit and distribute spiritual gifts. So something is going on in the heavenlies. With Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father, 
that has to do with the distribution of spiritual gifts, and the distribution of those spiritual gifts is related to the unique purposes of the church age and what God is doing in the life of believers in the church age today. So that gives you an idea of where we're going and sort of an overview of the next two or three weeks. The next, perhaps next month, four weeks, we will be looking at the doctrine of the ascension and session of Christ and how that is necessary in order to set up, in order to set up the church age. So before we can intelligently discuss the issues of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have to answer the question, why did, what is going on with Christ's ascension, which involves the question, why did Christ have to ascend? Why did Jesus have to ascend? When he came to the earth, there's many theologians, many people who believe his purpose was primarily to die on the cross for sin. That's primarily within the, the camp known as Reformed or Covenant Theology. He came to die on the cross for sins. Well, he died on the cross for sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. You have the resurrection. So what, why did it end then? Why, why did he ascend to heaven? What is going on in terms of the plans and purposes of God in terms of human history? Furthermore, we need to answer the question, why did Christ have to ascend before sending the Holy Spirit? So to answer these things, I want to pull together a number of things that we have studied in the last three or four years and just give us a global overview of the the thrust of Scripture, what's happening in the life of Christ, what's happening in the flow of Old Testament history and prophecy in order to set us up for understanding the importance of the ascension. So we begin by answering the question that we raised a minute ago. What happened to God's plan when Jesus Christ died? What was to be the next item on the agenda? From an Old Testament perspective, at least, it looked as if God's plan was ended. The prophecy was a prophecy of the coming of Messiah. Yet Messiah came, sins were atoned for, he uh, died on the cross, was buried, rose from the grave the third day. Yet, that didn't end history. When Jesus came, he offered the kingdom to Israel. That offer was rejected. He, as the Messianic king, the promised Messiah, was rejected. So we have to answer the question, what did that rejection do to the kingdom of God? What did that rejection do to the kingdom program of God? You see, and this is important. This is where it gets into some... Uh, a little bit of technical theology, but that's why these things are important. You know, people want to think in such broad strokes. You know, generalities are always based upon minutia and details, and if you don't, don't get the details right, it, it's going to destroy your principles and your observations. And there are basically two views that are, that are competing today, especially within our camp, which is the dispensational camp. One is the idea that Jesus came and he offered the kingdom, and it was rejected. So there's a gap. And then Jesus will return at the second coming, and at this time he will inaugurate the kingdom. And there will be a literal 1,000-year rule of Christ. But there's another influence that has come in in recent years, and it's really borrowing a lot of stuff from covenant theology and amillennialism, that the kingdom wasn't just offered and rejected at the first advent. In fact, it was inaugurated, but it didn't fully come in, and there is this gradual coming in of the kingdom until Jesus returns at the second coming, and then it's fully here. And the terminology that you will see is it's already here, but not yet fully here. Well, what does that mean? And why is all of this important? It just seems like this is a lot of theologians sitting around 
trying to uh, argue about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But these are important issues that underlie a lot of crucial doctrines. This is what underlies is this understanding of the kingdom that is fueling a lot of Pentecostal charismatic theology today. It is this understanding of the kingdom that, that uh, was the basis or undergirded the whole concept of signs and wonders movement, John Wimber, John, uh, or the, the Peter Wagner, John Wimber, uh, third wave of the Holy Spirit that started back in the 70s, that if we're already in the kingdom, then you can expect certain manifestations of the kingdom, such as your old men dreaming dreams and your young men seeing visions and healings and all of that. So it was used as a rationale to try to throw sign gifts into the early part of the church age and make it make them normative throughout the church age. It's also used in many other ways to try to change the concept of the kingdom. And if we're in some form of the kingdom now, then that affects the church and affects your understanding of the church. And so we have to ask questions like, well, what is the kingdom? What does this uh, What does this mean? Well, to understand that, we have to go back to uh, understand a lot of things in relationship to the Old Testament and what was revealed in the Old Testament. Now, the problem that Israel had at the first advent was they didn't understand the relationship between the cross and the crown. They didn't understand the relationship between the suffering Messiah and the glories of the Messiah. These, this distinction was not made clear in the Old Testament. At the time that Jesus came at the first coming, the distinction between these two events were not clear at all. And this led to a certain dilemma. When Jesus was on earth at the first advent, the people that saw him, the people that heard him, were not thinking in terms of two advents. They were thinking in terms of one appearance of the Messiah. And unfortunately, they didn't understand that the cross had to come before the crown, and so they thought that the, the crown could come before the cross. That's why I titled the slide, The Cross is with the crown, after the crown, or before the crown. They didn't understand the relationship between the suffering of the Messiah and the glories of the Messiah. And as a result, they tended to diminish the Pharisees at least, and the other religious leaders, tended to diminish the significance of the suffering of Messiah, and they put all the emphasis on the glories of the Messiah and the, and the political agenda of a reigning Messiah because they wanted to throw off the rule and reign of the Roman Empire. Now, we can get some indication of this from Scripture, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Peter tells us, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. So he's talking about Old Testament prophets searching the Scriptures, trying to understand that which had been revealed to them. Verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ Within them, and that is a, one of the few passages in Scripture referring to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ, tying him, his deity together and intimately connecting him uh, with the person of Jesus Christ. He's not the same. They're not identical, but they are one in the Trinity. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to come. You see, when people in the time of Christ's first advent saw Jesus come, they weren't a whole lot different from people today. They wanted a Savior who would come along and free them from social uh, social problems, from economic poverty, from being under the control of Rome. And people then, as now, were not very discerning as to who they would vote for. And this is true 90% of the time. You see, it in, you see it in church controversies. You see it in seminary controversies. You see it in, in a political controversies. 10% of the people on each side know what's going on. 80% of the people don't have a clue. 
10% on one side see it, and they take one position. 10% take the other side. But 80% of the people make decisions on anything other than the evidence. They go to the polls and they say, well, I'm in this party or I'm in that party, and so that's how they vote. And they may not even know who some of the people are that they're voting for or what their voting record is or anything. They just want certain things. Some people go to the go to the polls and they vote because some politician promises them that in terms of their life and their position, uh, he's going to make life better for them. And so they don't care what that does to everybody else in the nation, what that does overall to the system of government that we have, as long as they get to have a chicken in their pot and two cars in their garage or whatever it might be. Most people don't understand how macroeconomics work. They don't understand the dynamics of tax cuts. They don't understand any of these things. They think that any time you have a tax cut, that what that does is it just always benefits the rich. Well, it does benefit those who pay taxes. And for many people in the country, those who pay taxes are considered rich because the people who don't pay taxes and make, you know, ten or fifteen thousand dollars a year want to complain and gripe about the fact that they don't get a tax cut. Well, that's because they didn't pay any taxes to begin with. We're not talking about Social Security tax; We're talking about income tax. So you don't get a tax cut unless you uh, pay taxes, and that seems to really uh, be a point that that goes right past a lot of people. Well, it wasn't any different at the time of Jesus, and the, the mass majority in Israel just wanted a Messiah that would uh, take care of them, that would take them out from under the heel of Rome, and would bring in a reign of prosperity so they could have all the benefits and blessings of the kingdom. And there was no comprehension of the dynamics of bringing in a kingdom, which we will see uh, later on this morning. Before Jesus could bring in the kingdom, certain things had to happen in relationship to sin and evil and human good. Yet there was no comprehension of that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 tells us that they clearly understood that there were two aspects to the messianic coming. There were the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now the prophets understood that the, that the cross had to come before the crown, but not all of those who came subsequently to the prophets. The theme of suffering is clearly evident. For example, in Isaiah 53, uh, 3 through 7, we have an emphasis on the suffering of the Messiah. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, everyone has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter... And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So Isaiah 53 and many other passages in Isaiah and other, other of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, emphasize the suffering aspect of the Messiah. But then there was the glory aspect of the Messiah. His reign, the messianic kingdom that would come in. Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 reveal this. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Notice how, uh, I want to make this point, we'll come back and see the application of this in Matthew 3 in just a minute. But notice here that the voice that is calling says, clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Now John the Baptist is going to apply that to Jesus. So when people come along and say that the New Testament really doesn't, teach the deity of Christ, it's clear that again and again and again, the passages in the Old Testament that relate to Yahweh, the God of Israel, are applied directly to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, and this is one of them. 
Clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Now I want you to notice one thing in these three verses. And that is the announcement that someone is preparing a way for Yahweh in the wilderness is linked to the glory, uh, the revelation of the glory of Yahweh in verse 5. So we see that these prophecies, the first advent and second advent, are all jumbled together. Now, in the life of Christ, as it's given in the, in the Gospels, you have pretty much, a, although it's not a strict chronological framework, they all fit a certain pattern, and that is there is a period where the Messiah is presented to the people. There's the presentation of the Messiah, which probably took place during the first two years or so of his public ministry. And then there is sort of this, this the whole time that he is in his public ministry, both in Judea and in Jerusalem, there is this growing and gradual uh, descent that is coming from the religious leaders. They are their opposition to Jesus becomes more and more intense until and, and it builds to a a point where there is a break with the national leadership of the Jews. This occurs in Matthew chapter 12 and is seen in Matthew 12:31 where Jesus talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in this confrontation with the Pharisees who've just accused him of performing miracles by the power of Satan. He says, "Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men." And this is a passage that confuses many people. They think that they can blaspheme against the Holy Spirit today, but they can't. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in context is a historically conditioned sin. It was a national sin. He is talking about what happens in context in Matthew is that Israel as a nation focused into the leadership of the nation, the Pharisees, are rejecting him. Now, that doesn't mean every Jew rejected Jesus. What it means is that the leadership, the designated representatives of the people, rejected his messianic offer. And that is what Jesus is focusing on here as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They have all these miracles, the casting out of demons, the healings, were all there in order to demonstrate his messianic credentials. He wasn't just healing people to heal people. If he did, he would have gone to the hospitals. He was healing people and giving sight to the blind and the the lame were walking and healing the lepers because that signified that he was who he claimed to be, the Messiah. But the Pharisees rejected it, and so Jesus tells them this is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and it won't be forgiven them. And it wasn't forgiven them. That that generation was judged and went out under divine discipline, the fifth cycle of discipline in 70 A.D., because they rejected Jesus Christ's claims as Messiah. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is not talking about a soteriological forgiveness for individuals. It's talking about God's plan and purposes for Israel. Then in verse 34, Jesus just gets very much in the face of these of the Pharisees, and he calls them a brood of vipers. Now, he didn't obviously did not go to Dale Carnegie's school of how to win friends and influence people. Obviously, neither Jesus nor John the Baptist attended any of the uh, you know, pastoral ministry courses at modern seminaries and how to make sure you can have the most people in your congregation by inviting them all in and being nice and kind and, and meeting their needs. They weren't concerned about anything other than the volition of the hearers. If they weren't positive to the Word of God, then they were... Uh, Removed. He did not want anybody there who wasn't positive. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, notice the indication here, Jesus doesn't recognize the goodness of man. He addresses the Pharisees, you being evil, they, are, they have a sin nature. It has not been dealt with 
through uh, salvation. They are, they are evil. They are corrupt. And he says, how can you, being evil, speak good things? In other words, you can't. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, we'll come to a similar reference to what John the Baptist says, which we'll see in a minute when we go to Matthew Matthew chapter 3. But what I want you to point out here, Jesus says the out of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's the same thing that John the Baptist is going to say when he says, by your fruit you will know them. See, I, I want to make sure that you understand this. Some of you are going to get in a conversation with somebody about the gospel. And somebody's going to say, well, you know, so-and-so said they were saved, but look at their life. You know, they've just messed things up. They, they've been involved in sexual immoralities or they committed crimes or, or whatever it might be. How can that person be a believer? Don't you know the Bible says, by your fruits you shall know them? Well, see, in context, John the Baptist is being just as confrontational with the Pharisees in Matthew 3 as Jesus is in Matthew 12, and they're both saying the same thing, and that is that what, come, what is taught, what comes out of the mouth, reveals what's in the soul. The teaching, he's, talking, he's not talking in Matthew 3 about looking at the fruit of life to determine whether or not you're saved. He's looking at whether the teaching is consistent with the truth of God's Word. By their fruit, that is, by the teaching of their mouth, you shall know whether or not they are teaching the truth, the, the Word of God, teaching Scripture. He's not talk, it's not a soteriological passage and has nothing to do with knowing or discerning whether or not a person is saved. So in Matthew chapter 12, what happens is that the leadership rejects Jesus as Messiah, and then in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus changes his whole strategy in terms of reaching people. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus changes his strategy and he starts to address the, uh, address the disciples in terms of parables. And the reason he does this is to sort of go into his, almost like a secret code to talk to his followers because he's no longer making a public offer of the kingdom. This drops out at this point. The message of the kingdom changes. So we have to understand what happens to the kingdom. Now, before we get any further, we have to stop and we have to think in terms of, of um, a broader scope of theology and how we understand the Scripture. Because what this is going to set up for us is a understanding of the differences and the importance of the differences between dispensational theology and covenant or Reformed theology. Now, some of you are new and you weren't here when I taught through the about a 26 or 27 lesson series on dispensations and covenants. And that is a foundational series that you should listen to to understand what I'm talking about here. Now, in dispensationalism, the idea is there are three things that are distinct to dispensationalism. The first is a consistent, and I stress that word, a consistent distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. That God has made certain prophecy, promises and prophecies to uh, Israel in the Old Testament that he would give them a specific piece of real estate. They would have a specific uh, political, geographical kingdom. There would be a physical descendant of David sitting on a literal throne in Jerusalem and that that never happened in human history. Therefore, for God to be faithful to himself and his word, that will happen in the future. So these prophecies are all taken to be literal and yet unfulfilled. They will take place in the future. So there is a consistent uh, int literal interpretation. Second, and, and there is a distinction between Israel and the church that Israel is an earthly people with an earthly destiny and that God has a plan and a purpose for Israel that is distinct from his plan for the church, which is a heavenly people with a heavenly destiny. That Israel started with God's calling of Abraham, of Ram, in Genesis chapter 12, and God's plan for Israel was disrupted with their rejection of Christ as Messiah, at which point the time clock stopped on Israel 
and it left seven years. And that last seven years comes in the form of the Great Tribulation, which occurs after the rapture of the church, after the church is removed. And then the third, and and this is important, is that in dispensational theology, there is a doxological purpose to history. Now, there's a good word for you. Doxological from doxos in the Greek meaning glory. See, the, church, the, the in dispensational theology, we understand that the overall purpose of God in human history is to bring glory to himself in the angelic conflict and to vindicate his justice and his righteousness against all the calumnies and, and slanders of Satan. Now, in covenant or reform theology, they see the primary purpose of human history to be soteriological. Everything relates to soteriology, which means salvation. Now, this is a real real problem and a real conflict between these two ways of looking at things. Now, covenant theology and reform theology is the most consistent form of what is called replacement theology. Replacement theology is the view that once Israel rejected Christ as Messiah, that what happened is that God just removes Israel from his plan and purposes completely and replaces them with the church. Israel is replaced with the church, so that now the promises and prophecies that were, were to be Israel's are now to be the church's. And they are therefore spiritualized. So in the literal land that was promised Abraham is no longer going, going to be a literal land between the Wadi Al-Quresh in, in Egypt and the Euphrates River, but is now going to be heaven. See, that violates all kinds of hermeneutical rules because Abra- whatever God said to Abraham needs to be, and, and whatever the hermeneutics were at the time of Abraham, needed to be understood as Abraham understood it. Abraham always looked for a physical land. God did not change the terms of the contract, and that is known as the, uh, the Abrahamic contract, a covenant or contract. And in, the, in any covenant or contract in the ancient world is today, once the deed is signed, you can't come back in and change the stipulations in the deed. Now, most of us would like that. We'd like to be able to say, okay, you know, now that I bought my house and I had a 7 or 8% interest rate, let me just scratch that out. Interest rates now are 5 and 3 quarters percent. I'll just scratch it out and just start paying 5 and 3 quarters percent. It doesn't work that way. Now, you can go pay off the old loan and get a new loan, but you can't change the terms of the original contract. And God's not going to change the terms in midstream. So covenant theology is limited. Now, we're going to go over this again and again because this is crucial to understanding the significance of what happens in the ascension of Christ and the giving of spiritual gifts because God is calling out a unique group in the church with a unique purpose. And so to understand that purpose, all of this is going to uh, fit together. So we have to understand this, and this then in turn affects the future. You know, some people say, well, why study prophecy? I need to be concerned about my spiritual life. I need to understand how God is working in my life today. And if I can just get my spiritual life together, then uh, that's what matters. Prophecy will take care of itself. Well, most of how people understand the church age is determined by how they understand prophecy because prophecy is the understanding of God's overall plans and purposes for history. It includes not only the past but what is yet to be fulfilled or prophecy. And so how you understand the church, how you understand the church age believer and the spiritual life today is a direct consequence of how you understand prophecy. And let me show you a little the contrast. In covenant or reform theology, you pretty much have two views, either amillennialism or postmillennialism. Now, for the purposes of what I'm teaching this morning, they can be treated as pretty much the same. So I'm just going to put up a chart here of amillennialism. Today we live in the church age, but see, the amillennialists will also go back and they will apply the word church 
to Israel. So they see this continuity. We're all the same people of God. There's no real distinction. There may be a few things added, but there's not this break that occurs as a dispensationalist looks at it, where there's a radical difference in God's plan and purpose for the church age. So for them, the church in amillennialism, remember the a prefix is like uh, an English un. It's a negative prefix. It means there's no literal millennium, no literal thousand-year reign of Christ, no literal messianic kingdom on the earth. For them, they spiritualize or has that been off the whole time, or did it just go off? Let's hope the light bulb didn't go. Okay, we'll turn it back on. For What we have is that in amillennialism, the church age, it, the church becomes synonymous with the messianic kingdom. The church becomes synonymous with the Messianic kingdom. Well, let's wait a minute and let the projector try to find the computer again. Mike, I'm going to watch you. Give me a thumbs up if you see something. Nothing? Is it blinking? Well, we're just not getting anywhere with this today. Hmm? Okay, we finally have it up there, but now it's not on my computer, but that's okay. The church age is viewed as the same as the messianic kingdom. See if I can. I can't. Okay. I don't have anything on my computer screen, so I can't even look at it anymore. I'll have to keep turning around. But we'll go on. Okay, in, in the church age, the church is the messianic kingdom. So that as it, but it's a spiritual form of the kingdom. The, the term thousand years is not taken literally. It's taken allegorically. It's taken as if it just represents a full period of time. So we're now in the kingdom in some form or fashion. Now to have a kingdom, you have to have a what? You have to have a king. Where's the king? Well, in amillennial interpretation, the king is Jesus Christ, and the throne he's sitting on is at the right hand of God the Father. And they would call that the Davidic throne. But see, the Davidic throne is a literal earthly throne with a literal earthly kingdom. And that is your traditional amillennial interpretation of, of the messianic kingdom and the king and the Davidic throne. When you get into... Uh, I mentioned earlier progressive dispensationalism, this new view that's come out of Dallas Seminary in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. They're interpreting the, like we'll, we'll get into a study of Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 as we continue this study, but they're interpreting those passages as being applied to the church today. In other words, they're taking the same rationale and the same teaching on the same passages that the amillennialists do and interpreting it that way, and it is no longer a consistent literal application. It starts breaking down the distinction between Israel and the church. Now, we believe in the, well, in premillennialism. Well, we're just losing everything today. Let me draw these up on the, use the overhead, and we'll figure out the computer problem later. Premillennialism. Christ came, offered the gospel, it's rejected. The church age began in 33 A.D., goes to the church age, which is distinct. 
Oh, gee. We're just having all kinds of fun today. Obviously, there must be some reason in the angelic conflict that I'm not going to teach what I'm supposed to teach today. Okay, how do I? Oh, we got it. Wow, amazing. That's on both screens. Now let's see. Okay. Amillennialism, the church is a messianic kingdom, church age, thousand non-literal years, and the second coming of Christ is the next event in history and in prophecy, and that ends history. All resurrections, all judgments take place at that second coming, and then we go into eternity. In contrast to that, we have premillennialism, where the church age begins as a distinct entity in God's plan. The church age will end with the rapture of the church, although not all premillennialists believe that. But the church age will be followed by the tribulation, a literal seven-year period of incredible suffering and judgment on planet Earth. Now, all premillennialists believe that. They may differ as to when the rapture occurs, but they all believe that the church age is followed by the tribulation, which ends with the literal physical second coming of Christ to the Earth, and then that inaugurates the kingdom. That begins the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ on the earth. Now, the question we're answering is what happened to the kingdom. Let's go back and go through the Gospels again and get our framework. Matthew 3, 2. John the Baptist shows up on the scene as the forerunner of Christ. Now, what's going on in Matthew 3, and you might turn there in your Bibles, what's going on in Matthew 3, notice the Gospels don't necessarily start with Jesus' ministry. They start with John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And part of the function of the Old Testament prophet was to anoint or appoint the king. You go all the way back into Samuel, you see it is Samuel as a prophet who anoints Saul and anoints David as king. The king in Israel's government, in a theocracy, the king, therefore, is under the authority of the prophet. The word of God has authority over government and state. State is not autonomous. The state is not a god unto itself. The state is under the authority of God. So you always have this pattern through the Old Testament that the prophet shows up first and the prophet anoints the king. And the word for anointing in the Old Testament is uh, mashach, mashach, M-A-S-H-A-C-H, mashach. And the one who is anointed is called the Mashiach or Messiah. And so you have anyone who's anointed or appointed for anything as a Messiah, but there's only one Messiah, capital M, and that is the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, the, so before the Messiah shows up, there's going to be a forerunner. The prophet is the kingmaker and the king appointer, and John the Baptist shows up in Matthew chapter 3 saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he uses a word, ingiazo, uh, which means that it is near, it's approaching, it's at the door, somebody's about to come, we're not here, it's imminent, it could happen, it, it, it's right here on the scene. Now, this is his gospel message. Notice he's not talking about redemption, justification, he's not talking about salvation, because this isn't really a soteriological message. To understand what he is saying, we have to understand something about the kingdom. Notice he doesn't define the kingdom. When John the Baptist shows up on the scene and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, his hearers knew what the kingdom of heaven was. Most of you don't know what the kingdom of heaven is, but his hearers knew what the kingdom of heaven was because they understood the Old Testament, and they knew what was coming. Now, our time is up, and after messing with the computer, we're going to have to go ahead. We lost some time there, and we'll have to come back and finish this introduction related to the kingdom next uh, Sunday morning as we build up to understanding the purpose of the ascension. This is all background to understanding why Jesus Christ had to ascend and what happened in, in God's plan and program. We've got to tie all these things together. They are significant and foundational to understanding some of the conflicts between uh, Reformed 
theology, replacement theology, and dispensational theology, and all of that is important. You may think, well, you know, that just gets off into a lot of abstract theology. I'm going to try to show you why it isn't. That it it impacts exactly what you think of uh, or what's going on in the church age today and the Christian life today. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that we have such a clear revelation that gives us the entire scope of human history, helps us to understand your plans and purposes so that we can uh, then glorify you by how we think and how we live. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says that all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. We're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came to uh, the earth, was incarnate as a true human being, went to the cross where he died as a spiritual substitute, paid the penalty for our sins so that we might have eternal life. Father, we pray that you that anyone here who has never made uh, a decision, never understood the importance of trusting in Christ, would do so this morning. Father, we pray that you would help us to think through what we've studied this morning, gain a greater understanding of your plans and purposes in history, that we may have a greater understanding of our role as uh, as believers and as invisible heroes in human history designed to glorify you both in time and in eternity and to be witnesses uh, for you in the angelic conflict. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.